The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. All right, you guys ready to jump into the scriptures together? I sure am. We're going to be in John chapter 13. We're going to look at verse 34. I'm going to read 33, 34, and 35, and we're going to continue where we left off last Sunday. So if you weren't here last Sunday, uh, don't worry, you'll be able to follow where we're going. But this is kind of part two of the sermon from last week, which was strength to love, the strength to love. I mentioned last week, I'll say it again. I did uh, plagiarize that sermon title from a sermon and book by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but the content that follows is original. So let's read John chapter 13, 33 to 35. Here's what it says. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now that could be a traumatizing thing for little children to hear, right? Anybody, anybody have small children? We do. We have our youngest is five, and uh, it, is, it is sometimes a full-scale trauma episode when mom and dad go on a date night. It's, uh, that, that separation anxiety can kick in, and so we're working through that. And they can only imagine for the disciples who have risked everything set aside everything, left everything to follow Jesus into the danger zone of Jerusalem where he knows his imminent betrayal and death is upon him and he is departing from them for him to speak these words. It would be hard for them to focus in on anything he said after the statement, where I am going, you cannot come. And yet it's at this juncture that Jesus inserts the focal point of his plan to express his love to the world, and that is through his disciples. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And just to emphasize, he says, if you have love for one another. God, we thank you for your word, every bit of it, and the small section that's been read in our hearing. We thank you that it has power to transform, to direct, to provide, to strengthen, to encourage, to console. And God, I pray this morning that we would be fed from your word, that truth as you have revealed it, God, would meet us at the place of our need and do a miracle on the inside of us. God, I pray not only that this miracle would become a blessing for us and for our immediate relationships, God, but that the work that you are doing in us would ultimately be a work that you do through us, that all people would come to know the power of the love of Jesus through the transformation that you are working within us, your disciples. God, we confess our minds are alert and our hearts are hungry. We are eager to hear you speak. And so open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, amen. I was at a wedding last night officiating and um, I didn't know most of the people who were there. And um, after the ceremony was over, everybody kind of went down for cocktail hour and I kind of tucked away in a little corner and was waiting to do my uh, official pastor prayer over the food. I got to hang out and wait for that. And I talked to a handful of people and I was introduced to one older gentleman whose name uh, was Bo, Bo. 
And I don't know a lot of Bo's, but that was my name until I was 12. So my nickname was Bo growing up. I, was, I have the given name Jesse James Jarvis, Jesse being spelled correctly, J-E-S-S-E. Just wanted to clear that up for some of you. Um, but my older sister, she couldn't say boy. And so when she met me in the hospital, she said, what a cute little Bo. And so I became Bo. Uh, for 12 years. And so everyone in my, ha- in my family called me Bo. All my younger siblings, as they were born and learned to speak, called me Bo. And it wasn't until I was 13 when my youngest brother, who's 12 years younger than me, began talking and he decided to amplify Bo into Bobo. <laughs> and uh, I, as a 13-year-old, the last thing you want to be called is Bobo. <clears throat> and so uh, I just did everything I possibly could to nix uh, Bobo as an option. My mom sometimes would call me Jesse Bo, and then she would call me JB for short. Like, those are my initials. They're not. Um, we did name our son Julian Bruce, so his initials are JB. And uh, we called him Bo for a little while, but didn't stick. Isn't it funny how nicknames sometimes stick or they don't stick? Have you ever experienced this? You know that guy, that friend of yours that decided that they wanted to create their own nickname? You're like, that's not how this works, you see? Because nicknames, like, by their very nature, tend to be a little bit humiliating, aren't they? I mean, they are a little tiny bit. And if they're like, if they like make you sound awesome, then they don't, they tend not to, to stick. Like I, when I was working in the construction site uh, before I was in pastoral ministry, I was still passionate about Jesus and they called me the preacher, which was something to come. But I was also the tallest guy on the crew. I'm six feet, four inches tall. Everybody else was like five, nine, everybody else, like everybody. And um, we had these scaffold boxes and I'd wear a baseball cap and I'm just a little taller than the bottom of the scaffold box. And if I had my cap down and I was walking with my head down, more than once, I would knock my head right into that scaffold box and about knock myself on the ground. So I became too tall. That was my, name, my nickname <laughs> on, the, on the crew. And so that stuck until I quit that job. And um, my favorite uh, self-deprecating nickname I got when I was in seminary in 2007 and 8, so like almost 15 years ago, uh, there was a guy in the class that like took it upon himself to nickname everybody. And uh, he tried nicknaming me a couple of different things. Um, he called me Jefe. His wife was from El Salvador, and Jefe is Spanish for boss, and I boss people around. Uh, and that didn't stick. I liked that one. I was like, Jefe, that works. I like that. Yeah, let's stick with that. Um, but my nickname became Rearview because I had a bad habit of taking humor for the class beyond the line. You know the line? You know that, like, that line where it's really funny, and then all of a sudden it's not funny anymore? You know that? And so I was like really, really good at just driving just full steam past that line. And I just couldn't figure out why everybody stopped laughing. And it was just me laughing alone. And in one class in the middle of that, uh, this same guy, it was all quiet and I'm laughing and the silence like hung over the moment. And he said, check your rear view, you know, like the line's back there. And so from that point forward uh, in seminary, my nickname was, was rear view. Isn't that fun? Just got me thinking about, and I was, I was like trouble on wheels for sure. Like at one point, um, I had a little background in Photoshop because I worked as a graphic artist for a little, just a very short amount of time. And so one of my buddies asked me if I could superimpose his classmate's face onto Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, because he was from Texas. And so I did that. And then I, I got another request and another and another and another. And I started just cranking out all of these like superimposed images. And we had this one um, professor who came in and he was like a distinguished professor. Like you would know his name if I told you. And I won't even tell you what class he taught because then you'll figure it out. He's a very short fellow. And um, so I thought it would be funny if I superimposed his face on Bilbo Baggins, <laughs> which I did, and sent it to everybody. And then somebody printed it 
and then pasted it to the, the, the board. And so we all came back from lunch. There was, there was our professor, the, the halfling. And um, you could tell he was like kind of embarrassed, but was trying to have a good attitude about it, you know, because he's a religious leader and you can't like lose it. And, um, and he, went, he went so far as to say, um, he, like, oh, that's really funny. My wife will love that. Why don't you send it to me? And so while he was talking, I emailed it to him, but I used the email address that he had put on the chalkboard, which was the faculty inbox at the seminary where he worked. <laughs> and um, he goes, uh, yeah, send that over to me. I said, I already did. And he goes, I didn't give my email address. I said, I used that one. He picked up from a bag of gummy bears and he threw a gummy bear at me. Like literally stoned me with a gummy bear in front of everyone. And um, so for the rest of the semester, I like licked the bottom of the gummy bear and like stuck it to my desk and I had this little trophy gummy on my desk. Um, him and I worked it out. Actually, I, I got assigned to take him back to the airport after his week was over. And so it was very awkward when I picked him up. We were like sitting in my truck, you know, we have like an hour drive to the airport and like, so what do you want to talk about, you know? Uh, but we worked it out. It was great. He's a great guy and um, I learned my lesson. Anyway, nicknames, they, they, they connote like an intimacy, you know? It's kind of the same thing as when you hear your own name called in public and it makes you turn around every time. You know, who was that talking to me? There's something about having our, our name called. And I think it's important for us to tune in on this. And I think God, this is something that God has used again and again and again um, to show his intimate love for us. I think a passage is like Isaiah 43, one to four, but now thus says the Lord, covenant name of God, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. So we're using two names, given name and the name that God gave to a people, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now speaking collectively and then to every one of the Israelites, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And there's something really important about coming into a relationship with God that is intimate in that way that he gives you a nickname or that when you hear him say your name, there's a closeness, not a general, not a general you're in the club, you're on the right bus or airplane to get to the right location. You're, you're safe in the safe zone, but only because of the proximity to those around you. There's something that's really beautiful and intimate about God's specific love for each one of us. And until we connect with that and begin to experience it, we, we all find that we do not actually in ourselves have the capacity, the strength to love. We don't have the ability to obey Jesus' new commandment to love even one another, those of us who are all on the same team, all of us who know Jesus, all of us who are aimed at the same thing despite our differences, to love each other in the same way as Jesus has loved us. And so as we look to this command that Jesus gives his disciples, that they ought to have this uh, Jesus-like love for each other and that this characteristic would be the defining characteristic that would notify everyone watching that we belong to Jesus this is an incredible calling, but it's one that we won't be able to walk in or experience until we've come to know God this way. I, I really believe, and I think you could agree with me, if the whole world was 
all of us waking up every day seeking to love whoever was in front of us the way Jesus loved his disciples, then we would have a world characterized by peace and love and joy and sacrifice, a utopia actually. And the problem with the world is that it's in darkness and unbelief and doesn't understand the nature and character of God and exists in its own individual brokenness that is reverberating all around the world in abuse and hurt and pain, ultimately causing the chaos that we see. And yet Jesus has acted in real time, which we're gonna celebrate on Easter Sunday, to become the victor over that darkness and to rule and reign. But that begins inside of our own hearts. This is why Jesus left. He said, where I'm going, you cannot come. You know where Jesus was going, what he was talking about there? The disciples didn't. When Jesus had told the Jews this in chapter seven, they didn't care about where he was going. They hoped he'd get out of their hair, but he didn't, they didn't really care because they were fixated on where he was from and he wasn't from the right place in their minds. And so they rejected him. Jesus tells the disciples this. He gives them this new command. I have like 10 questions immediately about this new command and how this is supposed to work. But if you look at Peter's response in verse 36, he says, Lord, where, where are you going? Peter becomes the spokesperson for the rest of the disciples. And so everyone's kind of thinking this thing. They're not tuned in to this new characteristic. They're not tuned in to the command. They're, they're stuck on Jesus going and they can't go. And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And then you're like, after what? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? This is like Julian with me. I wanna go with dad. I wanna go, I wanna go, I wanna go. Can't go with me. Why? I'm literally officiating a wedding. You can't stand here and hug my thigh while I officiate the wedding. You understand how this works? I can't leave you to the care of strangers. Why? And then Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. Peter says, you, were, you think I'm afraid? I'm not afraid. I'm afraid of nothing. I'll die with you. And Jesus answers in verse 38 to close out the chapter. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, chapter 13 places this command of Jesus set in the washing of the disciples' feet as an object lesson of his love in contrast to the betrayal, the identification and betrayal of Judas and the prophesied denial of Peter. And so John has gone to great length to set up for you a context to understand the drastic nature of Jesus' love. Imagine for a second, and this, may have, this detail may have kind of gone over your head, but when Jesus is speaking to the disciples, this new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, he has just washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. Now, the disciples don't know what Judas is about to do, but Jesus most certainly does, and that's revealed in the chapter. And not only that, Jesus' closest friend and ally and disciple, Peter, the spokesperson for the whole, the rock upon which Jesus would build the church, here he forecasts, even Peter is gonna deny him. And so we have this amazing contrast here between the human inability and brokenness contrasted to the power of Jesus' love. And that love, when you experience it, actually becomes the source of the love that we are called to exhibit to each other and that is meant to be displayed for the world. Now, uh, I wanna show you why it is that we all lack the strength to love and 
illustrates in ways in which I feel like we, at least for me, and I see this in a lot of people, I don't wanna, I don't wanna like speak this over you if this isn't true, but this is something that I see regularly, is that as we navigate through life, and when we should ought to be drawing strength and power and wholeness from Jesus, Jesus will say in chapter 15, like a vine and branches, we're supposed, he's supposed to be the source of life and love and strength and power and nutrients, spiritual nutrients. Uh, we can do this thing where we actually start to go draw upon other wells, people, relationships, uh, callings, vocations, definitions of success, our own identity. There's all kinds of different ways we start drawing. And one of the things that's a problem, and I didn't get into this last week, which is why I wanna take some time this morning, is it's impossible to love a person you are seeking to draw life from. I'll say that again. It's impossible to love a person that you are seeking to draw life from. This is really important in marriages. I, 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 I don't do a lot of counseling anymore because we have a connection with a network of, of counselors who are trained professionals and really good. Um, but I remember having conversations where I would tell spouses like, um, your spouse is an amazing person, but a terrible Jesus. Do you realize this? And if you need to draw from your spouse what only God can give you, you are an, you're totally incapable of loving them the way that Jesus directs you to do that. And this is true in a hundred different ways. I want to show this to you. And I want to give you um, my kind of like um, interpretive lens for the whole Bible. And, and um, I, I was trying to decide whether to do this or not. This is kind of like talking shop. This is kind of like pulling back the curtain and looking at all the gears and wheels and pulleys. Some of you, um, how many of you guys like drive your car and you have never opened to the hood to raise your hand? You're like, I know how to put gas in it. And when there's a problem, there's a light that comes on and I take it somewhere and I don't even know where the hood latch is. Uh, sometimes churches like that too, like there's a whole lot that goes in behind the scenes and you're just like, I don't need to know how this works, okay? Just get me from here to there. And so I thought like, is this a waste of time to do this? But I want you to see this. I think it'll help you read your Bible. Um, it, I also like wanna make you aware of like the way that I see the world in Jesus and what informs my preaching and, and the way that we've built Christ Church. And so I wanna show you this. There's this pattern throughout the whole entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and it's focused on Jesus, but it's about our connection, our life-giving relationship with God through Jesus by faith because of God's grace. And it works itself out um, in at least three distinct ways that I have identified, and I think you'll see very clearly in the text, and here's the pattern. Um, join with Jesus, this is on our sign. The believer's union with Christ, we believe, is the central unifying and predominant theme in the whole scripture. I mean, Jesus is the central character from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the central character. Now, the Old Testament sets up to him, but as you look back after he's arrived and accomplished what he came to accomplish, everything else makes sense. All of the mysteries are solved and a clear line of the movement of God um, becomes expressed in Jesus. And then if you read from the gospels forward, the apostles are applying the reality of who Jesus is to life in this new age, this new spirit age. And so uh, you'll see that this idea of being joined with Jesus is the central predominant unifying theme in the whole Bible. And in the New Testament in particular, this gets worked out in three categories as I see them. Identity, purpose, and relationship. Identity, purpose, and relationship. Because of who I am in Christ, now I fill in the blank, and there's hundreds of descriptors. And this is one of the most important things for us to get because without a life-giving relationship with Jesus, we are all in a search for our own identity. Do you realize this? 
Now we're really chaotic and turbulent in middle school. That's kind of when it starts. You know, when you're an elementary school student, you're, you just get up and live life and life is good. We uh, was checking out at Publix this week with Julie and we were grabbing a couple things and the lady that was checking out a grocery, she, she, she looked at Julie and she goes, are you having a good day? And I said, he's five. He has a good day every day. <laughs> every day is a good day. It's, it's a great day to be five. Whatever day it is, it's a great day to be five. Can I get amen? But then something happens when you turn 12, 13, 14, where you, you start this journey of who am I? And you find yourself playing off of the people around you. What kind of child am I? And what kind of relationship is at home? And what's the, what's the temperature and climate of my home life? And then at school, and where do I fit in? And who are these people? And who are my tribe? And who wants me to be at their table? And what, what strengths do I have that people notice? Or what, what flaws do I have that I'm trying to avoid? And do I find my f- people who have my same flaws and hang out with them? Or do I go over here and find these group of people? And we start to be identified by things like our skills. Oh, I'm really good at soccer. Well, I'm a jock and I'm a soccer guy. And this is my team. And these are my people. And this is my life. And this is what matters or I'm, I have no game at all. And so it's all about uh, studies and I'm, I'm, I'm smart and I'm a nerd and I'm with, the, stu- I'm with the, the super class kids and you know, the whole thing, that's me, that's where I live. And then some of us are like, I can't play ball and I'm not smart at all. And where do I, I'm, in the, I'm with the flunkies and the dropouts and I'm gonna paint my fingernails black and I'm gonna talk about things that upset adults and I'm gonna, that's where I'm gonna live, you know? Like, and so we, we do this thing all through middle school where we're like trying to find our people. I did that, I don't know if you did that or not. I went through like all these different phases. I went through this like punk rock, ska phase. I learned to play the trombone. Yeah, I was like, I got to be in like a band where there was like seven horns and a drummer that was like, I was like, all, all there was to it. And that got old. And then it was skateboarding and then it was surfing. And I'm always trying to find my people. We're always in the search of our people. And some of us like solidify into a group where we kind of just like land somewhere, maybe post-college, you get married, you find your little crowd or your career begins and you kind of, you kind of harden down into this, okay, this is my path. And then there's some people who are 55 years old and they're still trying to figure it out. You're like, where do I go and where do I fit? And you're on your seventh degree and you've had nine jobs and four marriages and you're just all over the place. And I would, I, I would suggest to you to consider that all of us have a missing piece and it's there because we were made by God for God to walk with God. And if he doesn't dictate and describe for us the nature of our own identity, we will search for something else to fill that void. And when we do, we oftentimes seek to draw life from that. And so if it fits your vocation, you have to be the most successful. You have to, be the big, you have, to have the most sales. You have to have the most locations. You have to, you're always looking to add value to yourself by what you do. If it's a relationship, you have to have, to have the best spouse or the best, most healthy marriage or the, or the perfect children. And so what ends up happening through life because those things don't ultimately give you life and because you can't control the outcomes of others, when something falls apart, you go through an identity crisis, right? Because the thing you're seeking to identify yourself with and also draw life from suddenly falls out from underneath of you. And so all of us have experienced this to some degree. And I'm not even, we're not even getting into the terribly destructive things we do to cope with the gap that exists every day. All the ways we numb and drug and distract. And, and there's really proactive things like CrossFit. And then there's really terribly destructive things like crack. And all, all between there, we find things to do that take the edge off just so we can keep making it forward. You know what I'm talking about? And so this is not a pretty picture, but this is the world without the life that only Jesus can give. And so identity. And then purpose. The scriptures reveal that every single human being on the planet was crafted uniquely 
in the heart and mind of God and brought about by various circumstances to fulfill a specific role in God's plan for eternity. We have lost a vision of the value of humanity. Do you know that? We've lost it. The world does not value the individual. And it's funny because we live in a less collective society than ever. We, we, American is like rugged individualism, but it's so self-centered that it misses the point because we were made for the common good. We were made to be a blessing to other people. And so not only have we lost the dignity and value of the individual, it's just us, our little people, and then them. And so we're sub- subject to polarity and discrimination and division. But but we've also lost the value of humanity as a whole and its purpose. You know, the Bible says things like we're called to rule over angels in ages to come, that there is a galactic story playing out here and we are a central part of it. And this is where this is going. We never talk about that stuff. People are like, will my dog be in heaven? That's the questions they ask me. I don't know. Was your dog a Baptist? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Do dogs have souls? It's up in the air. I don't know. I'm not a dog person. I know my cats won't be there. I can tell you that. I can tell you that for sure. But these are, the things, these are the things that people think about when the reality is it's so much bigger than that, right? So much bigger than that. And so we've lost the, the perspective on self and humanity and the world stage and, and the eternal timeline of God and his purposes. And we've gone small, 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 small. And most of us just live a hamster wheel life trying to suck life out of the person we're married to, out of our job, out of our social network, out of our phone. We're just trying to get life. And unfortunately, it makes it impossible for us to obey this command, to love the person in front of us the way that Jesus has loved us. And so identity. Secondly, so purpose, actually kind of covered that a little bit. And then relationships. You know that God did not make us to live alone. God made us to live with one another. Now, some of you are like extreme introverts. You're like, I'm not sure about that. You're like, a large group of people is called a no thanks, you know? <laughs> so I get it. But God also, did, there's, not, there's like few things worse than being completely isolated from other people. Uh, and so like we're made as social beings. God made us to be in relationship with each other. Not all of us can handle the same number of relationships, but all of us are made social. And there's something about our relationship with God that then is supposed to dictate and determine and define the nature of our relationships so that they are actually life-giving and complementary. And in the same way that we can seek to draw life out of some identity, some false identity or some purpose, we can do the same thing in relationships. And so we come into an environment like maybe church, for instance, and you're trying to come in and you want to be valued and you had to leave your old church because they all had a problem. And so you left there and then you come here and everybody likes you because you're new and they don't know you. And then you start offering to be helpful and everyone's like, wow, this is awesome. Well, thank you, thank you. And you're starting to run on, on the fumes of gratitude and making a difference and it feels great, right? And then you become like the star hero volunteer and everyone's like, oh, yeah. And you're getting like the, the whole prizes and your pictures on the wall and you get a parking space. And you're just like, I am awesome. That's where you feel. And you're living, you're living there and you're drawing this, this uh, life from that. But then what happens is that somebody who's like your spirit has to go, hey, the way you're doing that thing, we're not gonna do that like that. We need you to do it like this. And you're like, oh, 
like jab to the heart. How dare you criticize my pure motive heart to love people and do things the right way. What a horrible person. But because you can't talk to that person because you can't love that person because they are the source of your life being cut off, you go telling other people about what an awful overseer they are and how terrible they are and how you would do their job better. Right? And then it's only a matter of time before, like, what, what gives? Why are you talking about me? And then you have to go find another church. <laughs> you see how this works? And so we start to just suck life from things that were never meant to give us life. Now, if you open the scriptures, if you open the New Testament, you read the, the letters, Paul regularly starts with, here is Jesus. Here's what he's done. And here's who we are now in Christ, with Christ, through Christ. All these phrases abound in the New Testament. And then he begins to just hit and highlight who we are now and how we have a source of life, what we're called to do and how it's different than the things that we would otherwise go in search of to find life and how our relationships are supposed to function. Here's an example. Look, look with me at Colossians. This is the passage that I read opening the service, Colossians 1.15. It's all about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of this cross. Who is this story about? Jesus. Now you could potentially get the award for, for best supporting actor or actress, okay? But in your story, the main character is Jesus. Verse 21, 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, why? Because you were in search of meaning and life and value and love, chasing a God-sized hole in your heart. You were doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Do you see now you have a connection with Jesus that does something on the inside of you to transform you. And now God is doing a work inside of you so that you can be with him forever. So we're joined with Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 to 14, how does this apply? If then you have been raised with Christ, do you see the union? Do you see it? raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Be, be heavenly minded, be spiritually minded, seek the things of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here's what your life should look like. Verse four, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly among you. Sexual immorality. So much of a sexual immorality in the world is just people seeking acceptance and love and pleasure in the wrong place. Do you realize that? And so we just corrupt the good gift that is sex and we turn it into something meant to give us life that can never, ever give us life. Nobody's ever engaged in any time of sexual immorality and afterward felt like that really helped. No. Every single time. Broken, dark, guilt, shame. Because that's not what we were made for. It's earthly. But we are part of something bigger. So we put away sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. If I had what they had, then I'd be happy. Which is all idolatry. 
On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God is angry about these things happening and the effect they have on the people he loves. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now here, look, look at the implications on the community. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So how do we live out our lives? Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, identity. Wake up tomorrow and look in the mirror and say, God picked me. Now turn to your neighbor right now and say, God picked you. Say, he picked me too. Welcome to the team. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Some days you need to wake up and just sit in the fact that God has set you apart for a purpose, holy, and he is just fixated on you, infatuated with you, in love with you, that his heart beats towards you, that he's mindful of you, that he just can't get enough of you, that every time he looks at you, he just smiles. Beloved. Is that the way that you encounter God each day? Do you find a a resource for joy and life and peace through the love of God because of who he is and what he's done in your connection with him. And so we put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect Harmony. Do you see where this can land, brothers and sisters? When we get this right? But unfortunately, we walk around looking for something or someone to suck life out of. And ultimately, it only destroys our relationships, leaves us disillusioned, leaves us disappointed, leaves us hopeless, cynical, broken, resentful, and angry because there is no source of life out there other than Jesus. But the good news is, if you come to him with the childlike faith that he expresses and you just say, okay, then I will get my life from you, then you will find a source of life that overflows in every area of your life. You'll become to get to know yourself better and who God made you to be. You'll find power to say no to the destructive behaviors that you've had in the past. You will not have a need to dull out or, or put out the thoughts and worries and, and find destructive habits that destroy your relationships. You will find yourself walking in, in security and awareness of your self-worth, able to give away to other people because you don't need anything from them. I mean, that's what I love about Jesus. I love reading Jesus because Jesus walked around like a boss. He did not have an insecure moment. Now, I'm an insecure person, just like you. All of us have our insecurities. Some of us fake it with strength. What? I'm not insecure. Oh, really? My, my uh, gift growing up was teasing people. That was my destructive behavior. I'd walk into a room, insecure. Nobody cared about me, noticed me. And I would go, all right, I'm gonna talk loudly, make everyone laugh, and you are gonna be my victim. And that's what I would do. And I would just start making fun of somebody publicly. You pick the most secure person, the best looking. Everybody likes that person. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get you. 
same destructive behavior, looking to get life from the crowd, tearing down another person. But every person walking out there, doesn't matter how wealthy they are, attractive they are, how great their life looks, they are literally a feeble, insecure person propping up all of these things, trying to find life from the same thing. But here, listen, we have the source of life and his name is Jesus. And we wake up happy with the way that we look, happy with the way that God made us, happy with the strengths he's given us, and even happy with the weaknesses we have expecting he's going to complement those weaknesses through relationships with other people, make us a part of something whole, let us have some humility and some love, and then to walk in our purpose and value the people around us. What happens is you end up with a community of people that are free to love one another and accept each other as they are. Do you see this? Perfect harmony, Paul calls it, and it could change the world. Well, I thought I was going to get this done in three weeks. Um, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come forward because I, I want us to have some time to respond. And I want to uh, direct your attention to Revelation chapter two and verse 17 to close. Uh, I would love to be a part of a church filled with healthy, God-dependent and self-assured people. People who wake up every day to discover that God accepts you exactly as you are and he doesn't need you to fix anything first that he's gonna patiently endure with you in your growth process, no matter what that looks like, and he's never gonna leave you ever. That he has the power and capacity to forgive any wrong you've ever done and to transform you, to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And this is who you wake up to every day. You are his workmanship, craftsmanship. He made you on purpose. And he's got plans for you that only he can fuel. And he wants to rescue us from a life that is seeking to draw life and love and meaning and value and purpose and distinction from others or from self or from work or from vocation or whatever you wanna call it. And he wants to not erase those things as part of who he made us to be, but he wants us to redirect our, our source of life from any of those things to him. I am the vine, he says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he who bears much fruit. And so we come to him Simply, it's not complicated. You wake up to Jesus, crack your Bible open. Uh, you'll find that there's some wonderful passages that feed your soul and you can hang on to those, stack them up, keep going back to them. They remind you of who God is and who he says you are and what you mean to him, that he died to save you. And as you walk in a daily and life-giving relationship with him, you can begin to practice who he says you are. You can begin to use your imagination to see it. I am not an angry person. I'm just wanting something from a person I can't get. But when I get it from God, I don't have to resort to anger. I can use my words and be kind and gentle and patient. And that is a thousand different ways you could express that. But God will lead you in that by the Holy Spirit and through the scriptures. And then you can live your life with purpose. Everything you do can have value because it makes a difference for the people around you, because it adds value to the people around you. And ultimately that means you're gonna build a community of people who are both interdependent and complementary, but also continue to flourish around the life-giving relationship of Jesus. And so we don't begin to draw on them, but instead we end up being a fruitful community of people who are blessing one another because of our connection with Jesus. I started the sermon with the joke about nicknames. And I think every person who's turned to Jesus and, 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 and prayed a prayer of repentance and invited the Holy Spirit into your heart and been, been a recipient of God's salvation, we can all kind of go back to a moment when we felt the draw of God. When, when that passage in Isaiah 43, I have called you by name. Remember when God got your attention? I don't know if he spoke your name in your spirit like he did mine. I don't know if he's if you heard him calling your name or you just felt that pull in his direction. I don't know what it was like for you, 
but he is so intimately acquainted with your journey and where you are in this moment and what you need and what you're searching to get life from. And he is so gentle and tenderhearted and kind. And he wants to just, just redirect you back over to the source of love and the source of life. And it's him. And I love this passage in Revelation chapter two. This is a vision of the future. And these are words for the churches. And I wanna read verse 17 to you as we close. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. And so this is not just me reading words in, in a church service. This is the eternal spirit of God speaking through the word of God to you now. So listen. To the one who conquers, the one that overcomes in faith the obstacles and pursues this relationship with Jesus to the end, I will give some of the hidden manna, the miraculous nutrient, spiritual nutrient that God wants to give you in the, in the quiet place, in the hidden place. God has a meal for you, a spiritual meal for you every morning and he wants you to come into it and experience more and more and more every day what it means to be fed spiritually through your relationship with him. And listen to this. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I always think it's funny when people bring this passage to me and they go, what is on the stone? And I say, I don't know. It literally says, I don't know. Like it's an unnecessary question. No one knows because it's between you and God. This is a picture and Revelation is just filled with word pictures. It's not meant to be literal. There's no literal rock that God's gonna hand to you. It's a way of saying, and if you knew how stones worked in the first century, if you were on trial for something, you would stand before a judge and you would either be given a white stone or a black stone. And the white stone meant you were acquitted, innocent and free to go. And the black stone meant that you were guilty and would be sent to prison or punishment. And so Jesus, at the culmination of all things to the ones who conquered, the ones who put their faith in him and live this life with him, we receive a white stone. Proclaimed, declared innocent, righteous. But not just a white stone, there's something written on our stone. And when we look at it, we see God's nickname. That endearing term that describes in the very essence, something of who you are and that expresses how precious you are to God. And now forever, when you hear him call you by that name, you're aware of that intimate relationship and that nearness that he has for you. And I wonder if some people this morning Maybe even as I share these things, they're new to you and God is calling your name. And so as we close with this song, I wanna ask you to just open your ears. And if God's calling you and he's showing you, hey, you're trying to suck life out of this or this or this or these people or this situation, and I'm calling you over here, then simply respond to him by saying, I receive it. I receive it. I receive your gift and I'm coming in your direction. Amen. Let's stand. God, I thank you for the work that you do in us. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, now that you would speak to each one of us and draw us into your direction. God, speak to us individually and personally. Help us to respond and receive everything from your hand. In Jesus' mighty name.